I founded the BeWell Collective, a not-for-profit organization that aims to bring nutritional education and mental health support to the fashion and creative industries. I believe the topics we discuss throughout our series are relevant to whatever industry that you work in or any issues that you might be facing. Because as a collective, together, we are stronger. This podcast is sponsored by my friends at Pucker Herbs. Herbal teas are a fantastic way to increase your water intake and keep you hydrated throughout the day. A little fact for you all. Did you know that your thirst mechanisms switch on when you're already 2% dehydrated? And dehydration leads to fatigue and weakness. So switch the kettle on, pop a pucker tea bag in and sip away. I have had a long-term organic relationship with Pucker Herbs for many years now, and I'm so pleased that they are our official sponsor for Live Well, Be Well Series 1. They are 100% organic and recognised by the Soil Association, as well as ethically sourced. Their newest tea, Peace Tea, has become part of my evening ritual routine and is one of my all-time favourites. Packed with hemp leaf and ashwagandha, these herbs help melt away my daily stresses. Thank you, Pucker Herbs, so much for sponsoring this first series. This August marks eight years since Victoria, nine-time world champion, won gold in the Beijing 2008 Olympics and gold at London 2020. Shortly after this, Victoria gave up her cycling shoes professionally at the age of 30 and has made her own personal journey ever since from embarking on life as a jockey, author, model, and mental health campaigner. So welcome, Victoria, to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Um, I'm actually enjoying having a little bit more time to myself, slowing down the pace of life. Yeah, I mean, we were all time poor before this lockdown. And now I feel that's one positive that's probably come out of the last few weeks is that we're all having more time. I totally agree. Um, I have a garden that was in need of some uh, attention at home. And so I've spent a lot of time around the house in the garden, which is very wholesome and, and good for the soul. And having spent a little bit more time watching the wildlife and things like that in my garden. Oh. I know it sounds, I sound like a right nan, but uh, yeah, it's, it's good for the soul. No, it's lovely for the soul. I mean, gardening is great for for, for everyone, really, mental health-wise anyway. Mm, um, definitely. But I want to jump straight into your inspiring career, first of all. Now, I feel everyone listening will know a lot about your career, um, but I can imagine throughout that there were some incredible highs and also some low moments as well when you're competing at the height of your career. So how did you deal with the mental highs and lows when training? It's strange because I got into racing quite young, just as a hobby. I was age nine when I got my first racing license. And having that kind of pressure and expectation um, sort of inbuilt in my system was something that I was very familiar with. It, if it wasn't my dad and wanting to please him and do well in the races so he'd be proud of me or my original, my early coaches or the national coaches, or the nation. It just kind of grew in size and expectation. But ultimately, I was always very used to 
being under pressure. And it's actually strange because I'm quite a nervy individual um, because I am desperate to do a good job. Mm. But I've also realized that I probably perform my best when I'm under pressure. Mm-hmm. So when the chips are down, I kind of find a an extra energy or drive or determination that I wouldn't necessarily have unless it really meant something to me. So I kind of always thought it's a negative then realized that it is actually one of my strengths in many ways it's something that I've trained to do learned to do over a lifetime of of competition and and that's it feels terrible don't get me wrong butterflies anxiety not sleeping not having any appetite but still being able to deliver at the end of the day which is something I'm quite proud of actually looking back yeah I mean I guess that's something that might have got you to where you are is the fact that you know this energy spurs you on more but weren't you told by sports psychologists that when you were 16 that you didn't have the right mentality to be a champion I I did I wish I knew who the person was I wish I could remember their name specifically I kind of wish we could out them on this podcast (laughs) yeah well I know I mean I'm 16 I'm very impressionable he was an adult man and he was a qualified professional Hmm. um to some degree, I don't actually know at the time. I didn't ask him how qualified to say what he and ex- how much experience he had to sort of make that judgment on me. Mm. But he said I didn't have the right mentality to be a champion. Um, so I, and it wasn't the first time that someone had suggested that. I was kind of a kind of a quiet, quite introverted individual. I didn't talk the talk. I didn't necessarily walk around t- telling people that I think I, you know. I think that I've got talent or I'm the best. I was always undermining my own self-confidence, but that didn't stop me from performing. I just was like, oh, it's not good enough. I want to be better. I don't want to fix that. I need to, that was really bad. I always pick on the negatives um, in order to improve my performance without necessarily recognizing the positives. So for me, I took that kind of, that, you know, when he told me that, I kind of, I did take it to heart a little bit. And I was like, wow, he, uh, I'm not, am I wasting people's time here? But some small part of me thought, I just really want to prove you wrong. Mm. Um, And I've lived my life a little bit like that, the underdog in in many ways. You know, I'm too small, I'm too puny. I don't have a natural acceleration. I don't have the right mentality to be a champion. I'm too girly, I'm too this, I'm too that. Um, And I kind of, to start with, I took it as an insult. You know, be like, you don't really know me and you should never judge a book by its cover. Mm. But then I also felt like maybe you've just never met anyone like me before. Mm. So I can be all these things that you see as inferior, but I can still deliver at my job at the highest level. So let's have a look at that, shall we? Maybe I'm doing it the right way and all your preconceived ideas are wrong. <laughs> so... No, it's 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 a it's been a weird old journey with lots of people putting plenty of hurdles in my way. Um, somehow I've made it over. Somehow I made it to the other side. Well, I mean, I think that you you've been quite open about the fact that you know when you're training at at, at that high intensity and the, what you were doing for so long, you also need to train mentally as well. Mm. And you're, you've spoken out a lot about that because I think a lot of sportsmen don't speak about mm. that side of it. But, you know, Steve Peters, I think, was somebody who was um, a psychiatrist who helped you a lot during your training years. Was that correct? Is, yes. Was that as important for your success as the physical side? A hundred percent. I would agree with that statement. It 
he, my uncle Steve, I call him Uncle Steve. Oh. I actually spoke to him last week uh, just to check in on him, see how he's doing. Mm. Just a little casual catch up. He is a really fundamental part of, of what made me the athlete um, that could perform at the highest level. I needed to work on that side of my performance. And I accepted that your mental training needs to be as important as the physical training, because at the end of the day, your body has to do a job. But I was in a very tactical sport where I had to be focused and switched on and make very good decisions uh, over split seconds. So the intensity of, of competition meant that I had to be mentally ready. And I put a lot of time and effort into that. And I never was embarrassed. And actually, there was a few teammates on my team who were very successful athletes, and I won't name names, who would deny the fact that they were tapping into the knowledge that Steve was providing because it wasn't forced upon you. It was there if you wanted it, but don't feel obliged. I chose to do it because I felt like every avenue should be um, embraced, that I should put as much effort into everything I can, into my nutrition, into my training physically, into my strength and conditioning, into my um, you know mental preparation. If I want to be the best, I didn't want to leave any stone unturned. There was a few individuals who said, no, no, I don't need Steve. I'm quite happy and open to say, yeah, I need Steve. Mm. Steve made me the athlete that I was in the end. And I'm very grateful for meeting a man with such knowledge and generosity and integrity. He's a real role model for me and somebody who I've learned so much from, not just about dealing with my the psychology in sport, but also just in life and feeling happier with who I am. and being able to navigate my way through dark times. Mm. And I guess, you know, when it gets to that point when you do, I think you said that you felt too old to compete around the age of mm. 30. And I think there's a really interesting synergy here with people that are in the fashion industry, such as models or dancers or certain mm. singers. You kind of get to a, a realisation that your career might not last forever and it, it can be short-lived. Like, how did you cope with that? moment because I know from a lot of people that I've spoken to that maybe aren't sportsmen but are in a short-lived career it's it's quite a daunting time it is I mean you put everything into sort of starting your path and your journey towards any pursuit whether you want to be uh, you know on the screen on film on on the track competing I was told that at 30 they were considering me too old to continue on the team so for me, it wasn't a choice that I made, which is mm. always hard. And for a lot of people, it's it's not their choice. Someone else decides that they've come to the end of their career. So for me, I had to accept the fact that they thought I was past my best and mm. I had to move on. And I hadn't really prepared or thought beyond my final competition because I felt that I needed to focus all my energy into that one moment, into that final Olympics. And then I'd worry about it afterwards. And And actually, they discouraged us from looking at career paths beyond sport because they thought it would take it would be too distracting and we should be only solely focused on the job in hand which was being as fast as we can round in circles so it was a tough tough transition and something that I wouldn't say I was necessarily prepared for mm. I'm glad that I had a good support network around me and Steve um, my uncle Steve has always been there for me but there's definitely been difficult times working out separating my performance and my self-worth as a human being and taking the athlete out of you know Victoria Pendleton and working out what 
am I left with? And how can I use that to create a career, my next career? Because I'm still young and I've got so many more years mm. left to work. Like, what advice would you give to anyone maybe going through that at the moment, like in, the, in a career change uh, at the age of 30 or in their mid 30s and they've just completely decided to take a full career change? What advice would you give to that person from someone who's gone through it? I would say take people up on as many opportunities for, for work experience to give it a name as possible. I mean, I actually even spent a couple of weeks working at Paul Smith in a design studio, which was really great. And he was a big cycling fan. So I said, can I come and just do something different with you guys? Um, so take opportunities to try different things. And, and I think the more people you meet, uh, the more opportunities that you take, the more you'll learn about where your strengths and weaknesses lie. And also the fact that Quite often, we have a lot of very um, transferable skills that we're not necessarily aware of until we put them to the test. I think you have to remember that you're far more resilient than you think. Mm. And you can mold a new career path. You can do something completely different. And even when somebody tells you they don't think you can, that mm. doesn't mean it doesn't can't happen. Believe me, I've been told more times then uh, encourage that it, it, that will never work out. And you know what? It generally does. If yeah. you put your heart and soul into it, it will work. It's building up confidence, isn't it? And believing in yourself, I think. It is. And courage, having courage to give something a go because there's no harm in failing. You know, we, we, we've grown up in a society where, you know, you want to be right, you want to be correct, you want to do everything perfectly. But ultimately, we learn our biggest and most powerful lessons when we make a mistake. So never be afraid to try something and go in and go, right, I'm going to give this my best shot. However, if it doesn't work out, it's been a great learning experience and I'll take what I've learned into the next step of my life, into the next stage of my life and just try stuff out. I mean, it might suit you. It might not. But until you try it on, you'll never know. Yeah. I think that's brilliant advice. I mean, you, as you said, you know, we, you finished at the round of the age of 30 and then you went on to definitely not, I don't think you calm down in any way shape or form <laughs> and still to the day of knowing you you're still not calming down no, no um, not really but you know we went trekking last year um in Morocco together and I think when you're on a five-day trek you do have some really deep conversations mm -hmm. and I learned so much more about you then than I ever knew and you opened up to me at that time I think because we were talking about different hikes that mm. you climbed Everest for charity mm -hmm. yes and first of all, this the, your whole experience of that blew me away. Um, I never realized how hard that actually was. You always hear about Everest, but when actually somebody you know who's done it, um, mm. you really understand, you know, what you put your body through. And I remember you spoke to me how much that trip took it out of you. You know, mm. not only were you thawed by hypoxia, which is an oxygen deficiency due to high altitude, but it changed your life in quite a dramatic way when you came back from that. And you were you were diagnosed with depression, weren't you? Yes. So I had been going through divorce. Um, I And I thought I had everything under control in my mind. Like it was all boxed because I had to go up Everest and I you know, had a new focus. And mm. pushing your body to that limit, you can't really carry any baggage, emotional yeah. or physical. So... I definitely made it hard on myself and I thought I had it under control. But when I came back, the result of hypoxia can lead to all kinds of problems, whether that's depression, whether that's um, post-traumatic stress disorder. 
But a combination of aspects in my life just got on top of me and I found myself spiraling down to a place I'd never been before. And I was diagnosed with severe depression and anxiety. I didn't even recognize I was having an anxiety attack the first time it happened. I lost all my confidence. The idea of traveling on public transport filled me with fear. I'd break out in a sweat. Um, it was, I really felt very isolated and lonely. And I never thought that I could feel so vulnerable. I, I kept telling myself, you're an Olympic champion. You can fight your way out of this. And then failing to get out of that hole day after day after day, it really, it really broke my confidence. And, um, it took, it, yeah, it took a, a lot out of me and a lot of, I don't know. How long did, did it, it last? Myself? Well, it was a good, I was probably about five months in total in a, in a very sort of dark place. And I, I tried really hard. I had two counsellors. Um, I tried different types of medication. And, and I think I fell down the, the, in terms of the track that many people do in terms of people. You, if somebody gives you a tablet and they say it's going to fix it, you take it. Mm. And I was taking at one point tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, antidepressants, beta blockers. I was taking everything because I just wanted it to be fixed. Mm. And it just made me feel numb. And and I hated that feeling because I'm so used to feeling highs and lows and being on this roller coaster of emotion and training and hard work and competition and then feeling nothing mm. floored me. It really floored me. It came to quite, uh, I was actually reading, um, in your, I read your book, but also in your recent uh, magazine interview with Fabulous last Sunday. And I think there were some real big points started in there when you felt that like you wanted to call it, you didn't want to see yeah. another morning, did you? You wanted no. to kind of call it, call it a night. And I mean, I feel like I've known you and we had some very deep conversations, but I never, I never knew to, it got to that extent. And, and, mm. and knowing you as a friend, reading that was actually really heartbreaking. Mm. Um, and, but what happened at that point? Because Steve, again, was a mm. massive help for you, wasn't he, during this moment? Yeah, I mean, I was I was feeling like I didn't want to see another morning. I wasn't sleeping very well. I wasn't eating. I didn't really, uh, in some way, you you justified yourself that everyone would be better off without you. Um, and that would be a kinder thing to do than have people have to deal with you or support you. You would be, you just want to disappear and, and the the, the lack of I don't know self-respect in some ways like you feel so worthless I was I was like I'm done I don't want to do this and I'd accumulated enough paracetamol to kill me about twice over and I was thinking about where and how I would go about it and probably hang myself at the same time which I know is probably way too much detail but I was in a bad bad place mm -hmm. and I rang Steve as one last I don't know what gave me the drive to do it. I think, you know, it's a cry for help in many ways. I thought I'd just about given up, but I felt like I owed it to myself to make one last call. And he picked up and, and talked me around and then got my, my brother over to the house. And, and I went to live with my mum because it was either that or a psychiatric hospital. And I did, you know, mum's care is always going to be better and it was mm. very hard for everyone around me but I'm very lucky to have had such a supportive family and network to to help me through but I reached rock bottom and I tried so hard to get out and just felt it wasn't going to happen and uh, I think a lot of people who suffer from depression can't see the way out they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel and, and for me 
I can honestly say there is light and patience is the hardest thing when you're suffering like that because every day seems like a week. Every week seems like a year. Time just drags and drags and your thoughts just drag and drag. And there is light at the end of the tunnel and you, you know, you can get through it if you really just commit and stick to it. And I'm living proof of that and mm. I'm much happier and much more aware um, of myself and also the suffering of other people than I've ever been. Mm. I guess that phone call was such advice and importance. Mm. And it really brings me back when you were describing that of Caroline Flack, who mm. passed away sadly at the end of last year. And, you know, would a phone call maybe have helped in that time for her? Mm. And that's something that I'm sure you really resonated with. Yeah. I mean, I only met Caroline, I think, once at a fashion show. Um, she's the kind of personality that you know, so vibrant mm. that it's it's hard, I think, for a lot of people to imagine someone feeling so low. And it, it did make me really sad because I kind of can relate to the suffering that she would have been feeling. Mm. You know, the fact that she felt so low that it was, you know, she took her own life. That's mm. That's a very, very unimaginable place for many people to even kind of, you know, contemplate. It's difficult to explain but it's it's awful really yeah. really awful very very sad yeah I mean and I and I get you gave some great advice for you know anyone that is listening and is maybe going through that and or currently in a in a, in a you know suffering with battling depression mm. you know what helped you rebuild yourself from that moment what gave you the motivation to to want to you know try and make yourself feel better well, definitely you need to seek advice from people who are trained and professional counsellors because mm. just speaking to people about it is really helpful. And to be honest, to start with, it's really hard because you don't really want to speak to anyone about it. You're caught up in your own thoughts and you think, what's the point? But speaking to the right people, being in a supportive environment is is essential. And you know, if you're lucky enough to to have people in your life that can help you, then, I mean, I feel very fortunate. I did have Uncle Steve as a phone number in my phone. Mm. Um, definitely seek out some professional help, but also you have to try and find joy in what you do. So the things that make you happy, pursue them. Even though you have no energy, just try. And every effort you make, reward yourself for, for putting the effort in whether it's just even getting out of bed and going for a walk, because there was days where I didn't get out of bed at all, except to use the toilet and have a drink of water. Like there was nothing. I had nothing. But just going for a small walk to start with, um, just trying to look out the window and take in something positive, but really look for joy in what you do. And as you build your energy and your confidence up, really make effort to do that and I think as no one else will put that in your path you have to source it yourself um, for me I decided that I was going to go surfing I love in Costa Rica and everyone's like I was just about feeling a bit stronger and I was like you know what I just feel like it's something I need to do it was almost like for the first time in my life I listened to my own gut mm. my own instincts I was like, I really feel like I need to get in the ocean. Mm. And I really love surfing. I've only just started doing it a couple of years beforehand. And I was like, I really would love to get better at it. And when I'm in an environment where I'm learning a new skill physically, for me, it's my happy place. Like learning a new sport, playing sport, being outside. These are things that make me happy. Living in the jungle, surrounded by nature. I was like, this, the idea of being in Costa Rica... <laughs> 
makes me feel really positive about life. And it was the best thing I could have done. At that day, that point, I took no more tablets, no prescription medicines. Mm-hmm. I went cold turkey on the lot. Everyone thought that I was barking mad. And I took myself to Costa Rica to a B&B that I'd stayed at before. I knew the guy that was a surf coach there, uh, Monty. He's a, you know, a really great guy. And he'd been through some tough times himself. So he kind of had a, an appreciation. And he dragged my ass out of bed and to the beach every morning and made me paddle through some atrocious weather. And it was the best thing, the best kind of recovery I could have possibly given to myself. That's amazing. Do you still surf? I do. I haven't been for a while, actually, uh, mainly because I kept injuring myself. Uh, last time I went, wanted to go surfing, I'd torn my hip flexor falling off a galloping racehorse a, few, a couple of weeks before. And I was like, I can't do this. I couldn't even get on the board. So I was like, no, I don't know. I don't think so. So hopefully this year I get to go. But just being in the ocean, watching the sunset, looking back at the jungle, and I was floating out back on the shoulder of a wave one day, and it was almost like an epiphany. Mm. I was like, there is nowhere else I'd rather be right now. It's such a beautiful place. There's a couple of guys out there, Brits, funnily enough, who, who <laughs> worked out in Costa Rica. And I was like, you know what? This place is unbelievable. Like, I'm so happy to be here right now. And they were like, true that. Mm. Um, and I, yeah, it just, it was kind of like, I can find joy in what I do. It is back. The joy is back. And the numbness had gone. Yeah. I was feeling, I was in the moment and appreciating the beauty of my surroundings and, and nature and the surf and the stoke. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm just dreaming of a beach in Costa Rica right yes. now. Oh, yeah. that just does sound quite dreamy. Not that we can go there at the moment, but you no, know. No. We can One mend, day in the future. We can think about it. We can. But, you know, it's something that I know you haven't really talked about at all, but it, it's something that I feel a lot of people might be struggling with now. And I know I spoke to you about this earlier in the week and mm. you were happy to touch upon it, but it kind of links into what you just talked about as well is that, I don't know if you know this, but at the moment, one in eight adults in the UK have experienced suicidal thoughts because of their body image. Mm-hmm. And that was done by the Mental Health Foundation in 2019. And I set up the BY Collective, which is, uh, you know, a charitable initiative which supports the fashion industry. And I, from working in the modeling industry, have been around a lot of people with eating disorders, disordered eating, um, complexes around food, and then working as a nutritionist as well. I see it a lot in my clinic. Mm. And I think 2018 wasn't just a, a tough time for you with 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 depression and 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 everything that you went through. It was, you know, you also started uh, limiting your food intake and you suffered with anorexia nervosa and bulimia. And you were 47 kg that summer. You actually yeah. posted a picture on your Instagram recently, and I remember you showed me this when we sat on the plane. I don't mm. know if you remember when we were in we were leaving Morocco. Yeah. And we spoke about it and I had never seen, I'd never seen you that, that way before. And mm. it kind of, it, you know, for me as a friend, it was shocking and sad to see because I, I never knew. And, you know, can you explain a little bit about, about how that happened and, you know, that time, that summer of 2018? Yeah. So, I mean, a combination of the, de- the feeling depressed, 
um, I felt like I was wanting to punish myself in some way. And the fact is, the smaller I got, the less of me there was, which was a positive thing. Mm. And also kind of feeling very, I don't know, unattractive, very like a failure. And I thought that maybe getting smaller would make me a better person, mm. a more desirable person. Maybe, you know, someone would love me if I made the effort to, you know, lose some weight in some ways, all these kind of thoughts, but also just kind of the suffering of feeling that hungry and just avoiding eating. Mm. And it was a, it was, you know, very much linked to, to the depression and feeling that so low. But the fact is it started to get to a point where I kind of enjoyed restricting my, my food. Mm. Um, but I, the, the thing is, every time I looked in the mirror, I still saw a fat person. And, and only now, after this time has passed, when I look back at those pictures, I see them as shocking. At the time, I couldn't see it. I really could not see it. When I looked in the mirror, I only saw faults. I never thought, oh, you look a bit skinny, you look a bit unwell. And people were like, oh, you're looking, you know, you're looking very slim, you're looking very light. You're looking this. And I was like, you're supposed to be looking at me from a funny angle because I'm not. Like mm. when I look in the mirror, I don't see that. So I kind of struggled with that, but it was like, I think a lack of control in many ways. And mm-hmm. I think food is the easiest way to, to, to feel a sense of control is just, you know, what you decide to eat or don't decide to eat. Um, and yeah, it was a slippery and addictive slope. And, and then after that, when I started to eat a little bit more, I felt amazing, like a level of guilt. And, uh, you know, I, still struggle now and again with the concept of having to sort of purge Mm. after I've eaten because I feel bad about it Mm. and you know it's an ongoing struggle with liking what you like in the mirror and and for me at the time I couldn't exercise and that was the thing that gives me a lot of endorphins and makes me feel good and gives me a positive body image because I was so weak and my mental health was in such a diabolical place I had no energy so I couldn't exercise so I thought well I have to do this otherwise what's going to happen so it was a vicious vicious circle um, of negative body image of body dysmorphia of kind of not liking what I look at and finding ways to sort of restrict it's a discipline thing it was almost like I was looking for some kind of discipline in my life a, a discipline that I'm you know, the, the discipline I had from training or in terms of my lifestyle as an athlete, I was always really good at mm. being disciplined, which obviously isn't ideal when you start to, to negatively kind of impact your body and well-being. Do you think that it's quite a common theme? Because I don't think that, you know, we think about elite athletes that have mm. can have poor self-image issues. Mm. You know, many imagine that they'd have such confidence in their physicality. And, you know, I think actually it's similar to like a model you're scrutinizing, you know, you're constantly looking at pictures of your body every day. Do you think that has an impact or, or not? I think definitely it's a, it's a slightly different kind of body image issue. When I was fit at my fittest, when I was at Olympic champion standard fitness, my body wasn't necessarily... Um, I would consider it wouldn't be traditionally beautiful or desirable, kind of quite muscly, quite nuggety. Mm. If I had a few veins showing, I always <laughs> felt really positive about that. I was like, yeah, look at my guns. 
And so the fact that my body was muscly and it was the it, it was the tools to my trade. Like mm-hmm. I'd worked hard in the gym for that muscle. It's actually funny. I did a shoot for a men's magazine and they airbrushed all the muscle out my back and made me smooth, which was kind of a bit like I was like, what? Do you know how hard I've worked for that? That anyway, was an Esquire, was it? That was an Esquire, actually. It wasn't. <laughs> okay. um, but I was, I kind of was proud of my body and because it was, it showed hard work. And mm. that is the body image that I felt most confident with because I'd created this through lifting weights, through, you know, all the miles I'd put in for the hours and hours I spent training. Um, when I looked in the mirror, I liked what I saw. I knew, I was very aware that it wasn't necessarily what you'd want to see you wouldn't see in a magazine Mm. but I was like I've got abs and I feel fit and I'm lean and I feel great and I know you know for me to to aspire towards that body image now is ridiculous because I haven't got six hours a day training Mm. you know for many many years without a break you know I can't maintain that athletic high elite athlete body currently now just approaching 40 it's not going to happen yeah and I think realigning what I'm okay with has Mm. been a big challenge because for me at the peak of my career that is what I would consider my sort of best body confident moment yeah Uh, so kind of working out what what is uh, what I'm okay with is a it's it's ongoing like it's working progress it's an ongoing challenge uh, I mean, I guess that is with a, with a lot of eating disorders or, and that what I see as well in clinic is it is ongoing. Um, you always have to kind of work at it and check in with yourself. But mm. how did you feel that it impacted your emotions during the height of your eating disorder? Like, did you feel with, withdrawn from your friends and your family? or? Oh, I felt entirely isolated, which is crazy because I had so many people around me, loving me, supporting me, and I still felt entirely lonely. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest things about, you know, suffering from depression in particular is how isolated you can feel even in a in a crowd, in the world, you feel so isolated. Mm. And uh, yeah, disconnected, just mm. totally disconnected, even though, you know, I had family there who would have been any moment of the day there for me. And I know that that is, I'm so lucky to have that. And I love them dearly. And I'm grateful for all the things they did for me. And friends on the end of a phone who at the drop of a hat would come around and see me to help if they could. Mm. And um, yeah, but still so, so lonely, Uh, which is crazy because there's so many people out there who could relate to the way that you're feeling right then at that moment yeah you're not alone but you can yeah it's 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 hard to imagine I think you touched on a really important point there with with the body image as well about you know that's how we think and feel about our bodies and that's something I've probably been in your mind since Mm -hmm. you started training you've gone through different types of bodies um and everyone has given you a different feeling and I think, you know, the impact of societal pressures can really Mm -hmm. affect how we see ourselves. You know, there's common threats. So we have languages which are emotionally charged when it comes to our bodies. So I always feel that when I did my master practitioner course in eating disorders, you know, if someone lost weight and you say, oh, they look, you know, you look great. That, 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 you know, messaging really affects how how you feel about yourself and then you shame people who are overweight Mm. and so these kind of 
um, emotional language can really affect how someone feels and approaches uh, their body image. But then you also have, you know, the industry feeds into these concepts. So advertising can really affect um, how we look at ourselves, you know, aspirational body images. I don't yeah. know if you felt any of these at all, but, oh yeah, you know, we also have times in our lives when we're more sensitive to our body changes. So that could be during pregnancy or menopause or general aging. And, you know, you touched upon you're about to turn 40 this year. Yes. Which is, I really hope that we're not going to be in isolation so we can have a massive party. Oh, I hope we have a massive party, <laughs> please. Yes. I really want you to. I would love a 40th birthday party. I tell you what, I've never really done birthday parties. So this would be, this would be really nice. Have you nice. never done a birthday party? Not really. I think age seven was my last birthday. I've got a twin brother. So my we had a birthday party at home with all the typical snacks and cakes and things like that but yeah, yeah then after that I was too old for, for birthday parties you're never that. too old for a birthday and party and then I got training and it was always like oh, I shouldn't really or no one will come or no I don't know so I've always had like I get like a little bit birthday blues around mm. my birthday and I don't know why because there's nothing wrong with gaining another year of experience and life but no, this one 40 not. I want to be like really I've been training really hard since well, since my last birthday, I've been like, I want to get aerobically the most fit I've ever been, like aerobically, because I was a sprint athlete and it was about power. And as women get older, they tend to develop really well in terms of endurance or ultra endurance. Mm. So I've been, yeah, I've been running a lot and it does feel good. And for the first time in my life, I feel like I could run and run and run rather than just gasp for air and want to stop after 5k. I mean, I do just want to say that before we started this podcast, general chat to Victoria of what she's done. I just went for a small run this morning. Oh, how far did you run? I did a 5k by the way this morning, which I thought, I think, well you done. know, is an average, yes, average, good. average small run. Victoria like, oh, just 13k. I'm just like, oh, okay. Average small run. Average yes. small run. Cross country as well. <laughs> Cross country running. Yes. I was like, I'm not going to tell her what I did this morning because that no. is uh, nowhere near. <laughs> that's my long run yes um but just directing it back to the last question is you know I reckon so many people listening to this will just want to know like how do you cope with your body image now mm. like how would so, you cope with that I think I it, it, I mean I have to be kind to myself when I look in the mirror because I have been very fortunate to have been a highly trained athlete for a good 10 years of my life from like 20 to 30 you know, I couldn't have done another day's training if I tried. Mm. Um, and I feel like I have to be thankful that my body gave me that ability and opportunity to be that person. So now I guess I've just got to be kinder when I look in the mirror. And it does change. Like there's different times when I feel harder on myself, when I feel, and then times I feel more comfortable. But for me, exercise is a big part of it. If I exercise every day or do something most days, I feel I like my reflection more. Mm. And that doesn't mean because I'm carving out an athlete's body again. I think it's more to do with spending time with me and doing something I enjoy and feeling that the, the, the endorphins of doing it. And for that is, you know, a big part of how I maintain my positivity in terms of my body image, because I've been bombarded my whole life with, I don't quite look like that. I remember looking at my sister's fashion magazines. She's five years older than me, mm. um, secretly when she was out. <laughs> and she'd be like, Victoria, you've been curling the pages on them. And I'd try so carefully to turn the pages. Um, and at the time, 
you know, we look, we're talking about sort of mid 80s. Mm. Amazonian, statuesque, beautiful. We've got the big supermodels like, you know, we've got Claudia Schiffer. We've got um, people like Cindy Crawford mm. bringing out all her workouts and their incredible bodies, feminine and beautiful. And then, and then for me, then the kind of slimmer, Kind of model side coming in and, and you saw the likes of people like Kate Moss and you're like, whoa, hang on. I look sporty and like a boy. I didn't look like the ones before. I don't look like the models now. This isn't good. Um, so for me, it's always been really hard to work out like how not necessarily feeling very womanly, feeling more like a boy. But do you know what? I'm okay with that now. Um, I'd never I, think of you like that. It's, I've always felt like I look like a bit of a tomboy. I dress like a boy, to be fair, most of the time, which doesn't help. Um, but yeah, I've never, ever felt that I've conformed with what is what society deems as beautiful. Um, but that's okay, because I'm badass instead. Yeah, you are. I mean, <laughs> then, and, but that's such a, you know, a, a, a horrible thing for me to hear is that that is what society expects someone to be beautiful. But I don't, I can't think of a, a general like term of, you know, what is beautiful. And that's, you know, mm. not just what you look like. That's so much about, you know, what you are inside as a person. And I think with the Be Well, that's what we're really trying to portray is it's not just what an image looks like. That is beauty. It's so much deeper than that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't just be aspiring to, you know, what we see in magazines. We should be aspiring to women like you. To women like you, because you are a beautiful soul. (laughs) I tell you that for nothing. I knew from the first moment I met you that you have a heart of gold and a generosity of spirit that is similar to my Uncle Steve's. And uh, yeah, I feel glad to to know you. That's so touching. Well, I felt like we, yeah, we became super close on that track. And I just realised, you know, what an inspirational individual you are. And I feel so you know, gifted that you've shared your story with, with my listeners, because I think a lot of people that follow, you know, it's whether it's nutrition or the be well or whatever we do in mental health, really get so much from hearing people like you speak out about their own journey. And, you know, one thing that you've had so many life lessons that you've, you've really grasped them with your own two hands and like, you know, I'm not going to let this defeat me and I am going to get through this. Like, what, you know, in the past would you have liked to tell the younger you? I think I'd like to tell me to worry less um, about everything, just not the small things in life. Mm. Like surround yourself with positive people mm. or people that you want to aspire to be like. And I yeah. think focus 90% of your energy on those people and the other 10 on, on maybe yourself. But don't worry with any other individuals because I think negativity and negative influence is something that we unknowingly indulge yeah and uh, and I think that's it's really important to to follow your heart and instinct and listen to your gut and your intuition I think on people in general the people that give you energy or inspire you and that's really important to surround yourself with those kind of people yeah no, I completely agree. I think that's a really important thing as well to remember at the time that we're in as well is if you're not surrounding yourself with, you know, positive people, surround yourself with positive, if you are on social media, positive social media, because at the moment we're all, you know, social distancing and in isolation. 
And I feel a lot of that has now also drawn into social media. And mm. a lot of us now are getting a lot of negative, um, I guess, would you say feedback in a way from, mm. you know, looking on feeds that probably aren't the most healthy for us day to day. Yeah. I, I really try and focus on more sort of negative, not negative, sorry, positive influencing rather than being drawn into the negative. Some days it's very easy, very easy. But I think also being kind to yourself. Yeah. Because some days, you know, you have these days where you're like, it's as it's difficult right now. I'm going to be really productive. I'm going to get loads done. And you're mm. just like, bang, 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 loads of stuff done. And then days you wake up and you go, oh, didn't really feel like it. Mm-hmm. But it's okay to have those days because tomorrow could be another kick-ass day. Yeah. So I think it's like in like appreciating the ebbs and flows of energy and enthusiasm and being mm-hmm. kind to yourself um, and Do doing things that make you happy. That literally was what I was going about to ask you in my next question. Because uh-huh. I, I feel like, you know, I get those days as well. I think everyone does. And if they don't, then they're not human. Um, yeah. But we all have days when we feel unproductive. And I feel like I'm a pretty productive person, but I do have definitely those days. And it's really hard to not beat yourself up. Oh, or just to be I'm like, terrible. Oh. Be, don't beat yourself up was Steve's number one rule to me. Number one, don't right. beat yourself. Because you know what? There's a lot of people out there that will beat you up. God, so the that's last true. person yeah. who should be doing it is you to yourself. So cut yourself some slack. I'm always telling people to cut some slack. Like if you don't feel productive, do something that nourishes you in a different way, whether that's making some delicious food. For me, putting my hands in the soil in the garden, doing something like that, um, making something, drawing something, something that is creative and or even just tidying something up a little bit. Mm. But it doesn't. But don't don't beat yourself up for not feeling tip top every day. I think I think that's something I've learned is to listen to myself and my energy levels and to be kind to myself. Mm. We all deserve to be kind to ourselves. Yeah, I think we should always treat ourselves how we'd want to treat our best friend, which is yes. what I try and remember. Yes. So, do you have any strategies in place of how you look after your mental health day to day? I think. I think I've got a better awareness now of when I'm starting to feel negative thoughts sort of drift in, I try and find something that brings me joy, whether that's spending time with my horses. Um, I used to spend a lot of time with the dogs to take them for a walk um, or I'd go in the garden and grow something or plant some seeds or do something. Um, so do something that genuinely makes me happy. I've got two baby rabbits in the garden at the moment Have and you? just watching them guys oh. just chilling out, munching on the grass makes me happy. And I just think having a really nice big cup of tea and just enjoying the view out the window or going for a walk or do something. I have to do something that I know is just for me and not feel bad about it, mm. feel good about it. Um, and so that awareness of, of seeing those feelings creep in, I think is something that I've learned through my you know, recent years and the struggles that I've had, whereas I may not have been so intuitive towards that feeling. I just crash bang wallop into a situation. So I think a big thing is identifying what brings you joy in your life. Mm. Um, I like lots of creative hobbies. I've got a she shed at home full of art materials and stuff like that, sewing machines, fabric, mess, basically, (laughs) which, you know, that's somewhere that I'd like to spend some time not doing anything particularly productive except being creative Mm. or at the moment 
I'd like to maybe make some bread or something like that. Oh, you're making cake. sourdough at the moment, I aren't know. you? It's, it's, and the thing is, my neighbour gave me some of their cast off sourdough that they were going to discard when they refreshed it. And I couldn't bear to throw it away. So I named it and I baked with it. <laughs> and now I'm sort of keeping him. But I've called it Bob. <laughs> Bob. You have to name it, apparently. Bob the sourdough. Bob the sourdough starter. Um, but yeah, I'm trying not to eat too much bread because it actually does give me horrible heartburn. But um, yeah, that's, I was like, I just want to make the perfect sourdough <laughs> and then I'll stop. <laughs> then I'll stop. Well, what else are you birds. cooking right now? I feel like I have to ask every guest on my podcast this question. So I um, I get some meals delivered, uh, ingredients delivered, recipe box from Mindful Chef. And I have their vegan option. So that always keeps me sort of inspired with what I'm cooking. Mm -hmm. So a lot, I mean, it's difficult because you have to be quite creative at the moment. We haven't got the access to all the ingredients and all the things yeah. that we um, that we usually would have. So yesterday I actually cooked some temper. Oh, I love temper. And I know this is going to sound really weird, but I put some vegan uh, pesto on it in the pan and just cut it up small and cooked up and then served it with, <laughs> so weird. With like a mix of Mediterranean vegetables in like a ratatouille or something like that. Um, and then had, this is weird again, I had some spring greens like cut up really, really thin on the side because I love cabbage. I just love all types of cabbage and greens and stuff like that. And it was the last thing I had in my fridge that was like good dark green vegetable. Mm. And I really fancied it yesterday. Um, I did have that some. That sounds uh, delicious. And temper, by the way, is fermented soybeans. If no one knows what that is, mm. it's got love. I really like the texture of it. I yes. really, really like the texture. It's lovely. Are you still vegan at the moment? I am. Yes. Uh, how, yes. How long have you been vegan now? Probably about five years in total. I went vegetarian the moment I retired, um, and then soon realised that I could eliminate the dairy as well, and actually feel good from it and I don't miss it at all I used to love a cheese board and thought it was never going to be possible that I could be without cheese but actually it's strange it doesn't appeal to me at all anymore mm. and milk if I drink it by mistake for example I make my mum a cup of tea and I sip hers pick up the wrong cup it tastes sour mm. it's very very odd mm. can't can't stomach it but have you kind of you've I guess you've really looked into you know how to do a vegan diet in a very balanced way mm. and the supplements yeah. and everything of that that you need to yes. take like your b12 b12 and... vitamin yes yeah i think we talked about a lot of that when we were tracking actually yeah i mean, I, I, just, I, mean I love I, I love the challenge that vegan cooking presented to me and um, just because it was a, a, a type of cooking i'd never really been into before i'd been a full-on carnivore as an athlete um, and I just love it and i think it, it suits me i feel very good on it i feel my energy levels are very consistent and i always loved veg mm. I'm really like I just really a big pile of colorful vegetables your body almost thanks you before you eat it um and yeah I just I just love it oh I mean we need to be eating more vegetables in this country yeah. anyway a hundred percent maybe I can um get you to make me a well not make me take a picture of your next meal and share it so I can see what I, you're cooking I will but don't to be honest, presentation isn't necessarily my strong point. Next time I do something that comes out looking quite well, I'll send you a picture. Okay, okay so before I'm going to do a quick fire round. But yes. before I do a quick fire round, what are you working on now? And what is next for Victoria Pendleton? 
So I have a new agent and we are working on a few TV project ideas, documentaries, Ooh. bits and pieces, hopefully about exploring adventurous things to do in the UK uh, is one of the ideas, but genuinely trying to do slightly more yeah, factual based television, which is something I'd always wanted to try. So we're looking into those things. That's really um, exciting. If there's some crazy challenge that comes my way, I will say yes. I'm always like, what is she going to do what next? What is she going to be up to now? Well, this definitely wants to be something motorcycle related. I love my motorcycle so much. I want to go on some epic adventures. Wow. Um, camping, motorcycling, that sort of thing. Oh uh, and in the meantime, obviously going to get more tattoos. Oh, but nothing, yes. nothing. You bought at moment, one at my last auction. I did. And I love it. It's my favourite. Um, I know. And uh, the lovely Mo Coppoletta has got some more tattoos planned for me soon. So I can they say thank you very much. Be well collective for ah. my beautiful tattoo. Oh, I'm very glad that we have. Offering helped. me the opportunity in the auction. <laughs> and I was like, yes, please, I'll have that one. <laughs> It does look great. It does look absolutely fantastic. Mo, Mo did a brilliant job on that. So I'm going to do a quick fire round. Favourite podcast right now? Yours. Oh, I love you. <laughs> Favourite dish you've cooked recently? Oh. That's... Sorry, tricky. Favourite dish I cooked recently? I made like a tagine actually recently, like a vegetable tagine chickpeas. It was good. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love a tagine. Me too. Tea or coffee? Ooh, at the moment, tea. Marmite or peanut butter? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, peanut butter. Surfing or hiking? Surfing. Wine or spirits? wine chocolate or cheese chocolate dogs Even or chocolate. cats dogs breakfast lunch or dinner breakfast sunday roast or sunday brunch brunch sunday brunch oh i'm definitely in agreement with you there yes and what does live well be well mean to you victoria being kind to yourself and finding your joy oh i love that answer <laughs> That was beautiful. Thank, Thank you. you. What are you up Th to for the rest of the day? Thank you. Um, I'm actually going to have some lunch now, but I don't know what. Oh, what you having? I'm really, really short. The fridge is looking very bare, hmm. so I don't really want to. I probably have to make a journey out actually today to get some things. But um, yeah, I don't know. I don't actually know, but no bread today because I had far too much yesterday. <laughs> All in moderation. Yeah, I, everything in moderation. It's the, it's the key to life, everything in moderation. But yesterday there was a lack of moderation. I mean, but it's a and new a day lot today. And a heartburn. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's not good. I had a few Rennie yesterday. <laughs> Getting old. Luckily they're not sold out in lockdown. Yeah. Phew. I've done a big box. Don't worry, I've got a big box in my first aid kit just in case. 
<laughs> oh my god I mean I just running the first aid kit you you completely saved me on the track when I got ill so oh no I'm you very I'm, I'm a very girl scout be prepared type of thing you, you know, really are me. a girl scout that's just me. actually that's that me. sums you up really well I am I'm a, I'm a badass girl scout you are a badass girl scout well I mean once the badass girl scout can go out from lockdown then yeah. I can't wait to come and um come Yay. and help me cook some healthy nutritious food in the country Yes, and ride horses. And ride horses. Brilliant. Oh, well, have a lovely day. You too, my darling.